0: You are listening to the issues on appeal podcast focusing on timely and
1: timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism here is your host Dwayne dyker thanks for joining me for episode 50 new summary judgment standard and a podcaster looks at 50 this show is again sponsored by court surety bond agency the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds more about csba later in the show Effective May 1st, 2021, Florida has a new summary judgment standard. This is something that doesn't happen very often, and it's worthy of some timely discussion. Appellate specialist Jack Ryder is here to discuss the implications of the new standard for appellate practitioners. So Jack Ryder, welcome back to the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thanks for joining us tonight.
0: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: So I wanted to talk about, the, uh, about summary judgment. Uh, it's, it's not often that uh, we change our summary judgment standards. So it seemed like something particularly relevant to appellate uh, practitioners and something that we should talk about.
0: And, uh, and you volunteered to do that. So thank you for that. Happy, happy to help and looking forward to the conversation and to discussing this issue and the uh, what is, I believe, an uh, inevitable transition that's supposed to take place on May 1st. To a new standard for applying summary judgment.
1: So let, let's go back just a little bit historically um, and talk about you know there's I guess there's always a tension with the summary judgment rule uh, between you know the efficiency of, of resolving litigation without a trial and and depriving people of their day in court. I mean, I guess this is a, this is a push pull that we've
0: always had to deal with. Well, that's true, Duane. And I think that there is this inherent tension because on the one hand, the there's this notion in Florida jurisprudence that everyone has a right to have their day in court and the right to a, a trial by jury under those circumstances where it's appropriate and warranted and requested. And then along comes this summary judgment, which effectively allows the court to adjudicate a matter as a matter of law and decide that there's no issues to be tried. And so I think there is that, as you put it, a tension between the notion of maximizing efficiency and disposing of those cases that are appropriately adjudicated by summary judgment and the right to have a trial by jury where there are disputed issues of fact. And I think that tension is going to be even more um some might say maybe it will become more complicated as we adopt a new standard and i think some will say that the in, uh, utilization of the new standard will enhance the efficiency in the apl- application of the new, of the standard
1: i don't want to spend too much time on the on the history but just to sort of put this in context uh, it sort of surprised me when i started looking back at this that the the summary judgment rule is not really that old in florida i was uh, thinking you know around uh, the 1950 or so that the Florida rules first permitted a summary judgment. And it seems like at, at that point, the standard
0: was was quite a bit more loose than what we would be used to now. I think that's true. And there are some early summary disposition or summary judgment cases where we see a lot of the development and evolution of the language that we sort of take for granted now when we talk about genuine issues of material fact. And how courts would examine whether or not a matter was appropriately adjudicated by summary judgment. For example, back in 1951, as you mentioned in the 50s, there was the Boyer versus Die case, um, which with the Florida Supreme Court talked about the fact that and, and there's some interesting language from that case where there was a summary judgment that was granted. And there the Supreme Court talked about the fact that it is a basic and fundamental basic and fundamental that a right to a trial presupposes a real and genuine issue. And they referred at the time to equity rule 40. And and the court at that time talked about sort of empowering a chancellor, as it was referred to there. I guess it was a matter of equity. And the court talked about empowering the chancellor to examine whether or not there was, in fact, a genuine issue of material fact, a genuine issue to be tried. And the court says in that decision they wrote, quote, while our rule is relatively new, it is patterned after federal rules, civil procedure, rule 56 and 28. And the accepted practice under rules of this nature is to accord the chancellor reasonable latitude in determining whether there is, in fact, a, ca- a case to be tried. So I guess there the court talks about how then the rule was relatively new and talked about the fact that, you know, look, we we recognize that cases should be tried on their merits. But but under this rule. The the judge, the adjudicator there, the chancellor, has to have the power to determine, is there, in fact, a case to be tried for purposes of allowing the case to go beyond this summary disposition, a summary judgment It's certainly putting a lot of power in the hands of the judge in that in that situation
1: and in the uh, the appellate court. Uh, so that was OK.
0: It definitely does. It definitely does. And I think as we see kind of that evolution, you can look at a series of cases Uh, Over the course of that decade and into the 1960s, for example, there was food fair stores of Florida versus Patty, where the court talked about how there, uh, upon an application for a summary judgment and action for negligence, where it is properly shown that the plaintiff is completely without proof to sustain the complaint. The defendant has no obligation to offer evidence to excuse itself. And there the court talked about the fact that the plaintiff has the burden, that initial burden of demonstrating an existence of material fact to be tried. And then in 1965, in Harvey versus Haley, there the Florida Supreme Court said that if the moving party presents evidence to support the claimed non-existence of a material issue, he will be entitled to summary judgment unless the opposing party comes forward with some evidence which will change the result, and that is evidence sufficient to generate an issue on a material fact. So these three cases that we look at you can see a lot of the language that made its way into Rule 1.510 that we sort of take for granted when we talk about summary judgment standards and what it means to move for summary judgment and what the judge is supposed to review when examining whether or not a person has or has not demonstrated the existence of a material fact to be tried. You now and certainly over
1: time and, and certainly now in the time period that you and I have been practicing law, the the standard has evolved into something. Uh, more strict, and in fact, uh, more strict uh,
0: than even the federal courts uh, apply for summary judgment. That's right. That's right. And I think if we look at, uh, for example, in Whole versus Talcott, nineteen sixty six, there the Florida Supreme Court, I think, really announced what we sort of look to as a more restrictive application of the summary judgment standard. And I think that is really sort of the harbinger of the summary judgment standard that we in Florida up to this point really know. There there was a group of defendants, they were medical professionals, and they moved for summary judgment with affidavits uh, attempting to demonstrate that their surgery and post-operative care conformed to accepted medical standards. And the court basically said as follows, where the affidavits did not in themselves demonstrate conclusively that the doctors were not guilty of malpractice so as to justify a determination that as a matter of law, there was no material fact necessary to be tried. And the court basically said that in in a tort case, a a defendant, in that case, the, the court essentially said that a defendant moving for summary judgment had the burden of providing an explanation for the accident or the injury that disproved their own negligence. And the court really looked to, as I interpret that decision, the fact that This higher standard, this more restrictive application of the summary judgment standard is necessary because summary judgment procedures are in derogation of a right to a trial. And so I think the court really looked at this and said, if we're going to allow defendants To move for summary judgment and of course a plaintiff could theoretically move for summary judgment on an issue or there could be a, a partial summary judgment on a certain issue but looking at it from the perspective of a defendant moving for summary judgment to eliminate a trial for example the court i believe really said if we're going to allow and certainly in a tort case a defendant to move for summary judgment in order to in derogation of the right to trial have the entitlement to judgment as a matter of law in Hull versus Halcott, I believe the court really said, "Look, the defendant has the burden of, of not only providing and negating the plaintiff's case but really demonstrating almost proving their their non liability proving that they are not at fault so it really was a very very restrictive standard,
1: which has led you know i've heard in discussing this with lawyers and trial lawyers over the years you know the this restrictiveness has has led to offhanded comments like you know the, the Florida courts have have uh, uh, don't allow summary judgment and negligence cases, right? Or have, have done away with summary judgments and negligence cases, which obviously is is hyperbole, but that's sort of one of the perceptions that's
0: out there. And I believe that that is a perception. And there are, there are cases out there, none come to mind in terms of their name, but I can distinctly remember uh, cases where um, courts have held that matters of negligence or questions of of fault where, where there's um, summary judgments are rarely going to be granted. And I think there are cases out there that have said that. Of course, even under the current standard, I'm sure just as you have, I have had many times summary judgments that have been granted and then affirmed on appeal, even in cases arising out of tort claims where the evidence really was so clear that the court concluded that as a matter of law, summary judgment was appropriate. And I'll note, That I think one of the things that we have in place now, and of course will continue in place, is that because summary judgments are going to be reviewed under the de novo standard by the appellate courts, I think that was sort of a built-in fail-safe anyway, because assuming for the sake of discussion that it was a close call – Well, the appellate court will review it de novo and therefore a person who believes that a summary judgment should not have been granted is going to have another opportunity at the appellate level under the de novo standard with inferences being construed in that person's favor with respect to trying to reverse a summary judgment. So that protection exists under the current standard and it'll exist under the new standard once it's applied.
1: Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at 877 810 5525 and their contact information is always in the show notes. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency that assists with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. I suggest you take a moment, visit their website, courtsurety.com. It's full of valuable resources, including a state-by-state guide to appeal bond requirements and a comprehensive FAQ on collateral, underwriting, and the application process. The next time a client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. As we record the deadline for the imposition of the new summary judgment standard is is looming for May 1st, you know, how how did we get here? How did we get to this position?
0: Sure. So there's there's. Two cases. Well, let me start with the first one, but there's really two decisions out of the Florida Supreme Court that have taken us or the imminent transition from the uh, current standard under summary judgment and then to the federal standard. So the first decision that came out that I'll discuss is Wilson Art versus Lopez and that's at 308 Southern 3rd 961, Uh, and that's a Florida Supreme Court decision that came up from the Fifth District Court of Appeal on a question certified as a matter of great public importance. It's an interesting case because the case did not in and of itself suggest that a new standard for summary judgment should be adopted. Uh, What's interesting about that case is that there was a vehicle accident And the trial court viewed a video, some sort of video evidence. And I actually looked online to see if I could find the video, but I couldn't because I was intrigued. But the trial judge watched this video and concluded that it flatly contradicted testimony from the eyewitness and completely undermined the plaintiff's expert. And so the judge noted that the evidence, there was no evidence the video was altered or tampered with. And so the trial court entered summary judgment. And said, you know, when you're I'm looking at this video and this video completely contradicts the the witnesses, summary judgment was appropriate. So it goes up to the Fifth District Court of Appeal and the Fifth District reverses. And the court held that by elevating the video above the witness testimony, the trial judge was improperly weighing competing evidence on material facts. Which is a fascinating, fascinating to think about, because here you've got as our world transitions into A time where everything is recorded and there's cameras everywhere. And we've become very accustomed to the fact that if there's something that happens anywhere in the world, it's going to have some sort of video people have now in their cars. They have webcam or uh, dash cams. And so we've got a lot of things that are being recorded and the fifth district and the trial, uh, the fifth district sort of notice notes this in their decision. So the fifth district certifies to the Florida Supreme Court whether or not there should be. An exception to summary judgments um, when there's video evidence that negates or refutes conflicting evidence. So the case goes up to the Florida Supreme Court on the certified question of whether or not a video should be utilized and elevated above other potentially conflicting testimony. And the interesting thing to me is that the Florida Supreme Court took jurisdiction and answered the certified question in the negative and said, we do not answer this uh, affirmatively. The court says that basically there there will not be a per se rule that suggests that video evidence is going to be elevated above other potentially conflicting evidence. However, the Supreme Court utilizes this case as an opportunity to say, while we're here, parties, we'd like you to brief whether or not the court should adopt through a separate rule amendment, the federal summary judgment standard. So that's sort of how we got to this place. Um, It really came up under a very interesting way and then sort of morphed or evolved into the broader question of, are we really applying the summary judgment standard correctly? And I think the Florida Supreme Court kind of examined it from this perspective of, this is a case that suggests we're not going to adopt a per se rule involving video, but we want to take a look at the broader question of, should we be imposing a, a less strict or less restrictive summary judgment standard?
1: Yeah, that is interesting. And and like you, I would, I would like to see the video. <laughs> I'd like to see how clear it is. It is an interesting concept, right? That, you know, obviously we know that, you know, video can be altered and that sort of thing. But in the absence of that, you know, it is an interesting perspective of the court that that is still the it's still a credibility issue. You know, if something is clearly on video, um, the judge can't, uh, you know, that that doesn't override, uh, testimonial evidence. It really is kind of fascinating. I can see why they came down that way. Um, but, um, you know, I, I could definitely see arguing both sides of that, but, um, you know, I guess ultimately they were going to get to this issue of the federal standard
0: one way or another. This just happened to be the the vehicle at the right time, I guess. I guess that's, I guess that's right. I guess the court saw it as the right vehicle at the right time. And I think that, I think that the court probably assumes that on remand, once the court addresses it, once, once the court revisits the issue it will then find that the summary judgment was appropriate in light of the evidence and the video. And I guess rather than just address it on that very narrow question of whether or not a video or a video evidence will be utilized as overriding conflicting testimony or conflicting evidence, the court adop- utilized this to adopt the broader standard.
1: Does that then trigger the, the Rules Committee work on amending
0: Rule 1.510? Well, yes, it's essentially essentially that what the Supreme Court sua sponte, issues this other decision in Ray Amendments to Florida Rule of Civil Procedure one point five one zero, which is reported at three hundred nine Southern Third one ninety two, um, and that that decision followed uh, the um, the courts, and I think it was even referenced in Wilson Art, as I recall. I think the Wilson Art decision even referenced where the court said, you know, we sua sponte um adopt or issue this rule subject to comments from the public. And that's why that's why, although the decision came out when it did, I think they had about a three month lead time before it becomes effective. So that if there were members of the public who want to opine or or take issue that they would have an opportunity to do so. Um, so that was the the decision. So that was like the second part of the how did we get here? There was this Wilson art decision and then in Ray amendments to Florida rule of civil procedure. And that is another fascinating decision because it really, the court really describes the differences between Florida's application of the summary judgment rule and the federal courts as the court describes the intent to modify, to amend rule 1.510 to explicitly designate that the court will. Um, That courts are to apply the federal standard applied under these federal cases, Celotex versus Catrett, Anderson versus Liberty Lobby, and the Matsushita Electrical versus Zenith Radio, just by short form.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, is that ultimately the answer is that uh, until we develop our own case law in Florida, that uh, we're going to be citing two federal cases on the summary judgment standard?
0: I think that's, I think at this point, that will be an appropriate move. I mean, let's put it this way. I, it's not uncommon, as we know, when a, a Florida rule is modeled after a federal rule to look to federal cases that have uh, addressed and adjudicated those decisions. Here we've got a circumstance, just like uh, a few years ago when Florida, or not so long ago when Florida adopted the Doward standard, we start looking to federal courts just because they have the history. So, so here, I do think that'll be, at least in the short term, I think that looking to federal cases will be very, very instructive. At the same time, I'm, I believe there's a lot of Florida cases out there that had already sort of started moving toward this evolution, though perhaps not quite as overtly. I think that a lot of Florida courts may have already been applying or looking to matters where um, I think... I've seen cases, as I recall, and I'm sure you've seen these cases where we talk about matters that are in dispute, that are not fanciful, that are reasonable, reasonable matters of dispute. And I think that's very similar to the federal standard. But if we, if we look – one of the things, as I was saying, if we look at the, um, the rule amendment case, the court really breaks down for the readers, for, the, for us, what they see as these distinctions. It really crystallizes why this is important. And so if we look at the decision, uh, it's so first of all, the, the court noted that Florida courts have repeatedly declined to recognize the fundamental similarity between a motion for directed verdict and a motion for summary judgment. And the court says that, by contrast, the U.S. Supreme Court has concluded that the inquiry under each is the same. Whether the evidence presents a sufficient disagreement to require submission to a jury or whether it is so one-sided that one party must prevail as a matter of law, referring to the Anderson decision out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I, for many years, when I have argued summary judgments, and I'm sure you have too, I have cited to directed verdict cases. And when I've argued for directed verdicts, I've cited the summary judgment cases. So I, even though there certainly are courts that have historically... Um, distinguished between summary judgment and directed verdict. There are a lot of cases out there now, even under the current standard, the current state, not federal standard, that have recognized sort of a, an overlapping application of, um, of a standard for purposes of granting either a directed verdict or a summary judgment. In light of all the evidence, construed in a light most favorable to the non-moving party, has the moving party demonstrated entitlement to uh, judgment as a matter of law. I've always articulated a directed verdict and summary judgment standard along very similar lines. And I think now the court is recognizing that very officially. Similarly, with the second point that the Supreme Court talks about, they they really, and I think this to me is the most significant change. Mm-hmm. And that is the idea that no longer does the moving party have to conclusively disprove the non-moving party's theory of the case in order to eliminate any issue of fact. So in, in Celotex, the Supreme Court of the United States had explained that there's no express or implied requirement in Rule 56, the federal summary judgment rule, that the moving party support its motion with affidavits or other similar materials negating the opponent's claim. Rather, the burden on the moving party may be discharged by showing That is pointing out to the district court that there is an absence of evidence to support the non-moving party's case. I think this is the most significant change between the state and federal standard, because now, and under Hull versus Talcott, if we look back at the language there, remember there, the court talked about how summary judgment is in derogation of the right to a jury trial, and they really imposed a very high burden on the defendants in that case and said, if you want... To be adjudicated as a matter of law, if you want a summary judgment it 's not enough just to challenge the plaintiff 's evidence you 've got to prove that you are in fact correct it 's almost like a burden shift under whole versus talcott yes. it 's like the the defendant has to the burden of proving their right no longer under the federal standard now, if we read uh, under the inray am- rule amendment decision and the citation to Celitex. Now, one could argue that the non, uh, excuse me, the moving party need not even come in with affidavits. They just have to come in and say, judge, look at the plaintiff's uh, case and you will see that they cannot demonstrate that they can support their case as a matter of law, either because of the evidence or because of of legal standards. So I believe that's a very significant change.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think that is the key uh, takeaway. Uh, you know, like the, I want you to talk about the third point too, but that that certainly has been one of the key distinctions, and I think that's that that is a big shift that everybody should
0: should be aware of. Absolutely, and I anticipate that that's going to get cited very very often because it is really going to hold plaintiffs. And I and I I keep saying plaintiffs, but I I should not lose sight of the fact that of course a plaintiff can also move for summary judgment against the defendant, and I've seen very frequently. Both sides moving for partial summary judgments on different issues to try and challenge different issues. So I've been saying a lot, defendants moving for summary judgment, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that either side can move for summary judgment, and this standard will benefit either side in those instances where there is in fact no genuine issue of material fact to be tried. So the third standard, a uh, third point, is that Florida courts, according to the Florida Supreme Court. Florida courts have adopted an expansive understanding of what constitutes a genuine or tribal issue of material fact, and Florida courts have declined to grant summary judgment if the record raises even the, quote, slightest doubt, unquote, that material issues could be present. But the U.S. Supreme Court has described this, this same kind of test as well, whether the evidence is such, quote, that a reasonable jury could return a verdict for the non-moving party, unquote. And that comes out of the Anderson case. And a party opposing summary judgment must do more than simply show that there is some metaphysical doubt as to the material facts, unquote. I have, by the way, I have argued that many times. I have, and I will say that uh, I have argued summary judgment many times and I have quoted that exact language. It's not enough to just say that there's some slight doubt as to the existence of material facts, or that there's some metaphysical doubt as to material facts. But now that standard is going to be official. The idea that it's not enough to say that there's a scintilla or slight doubt or any doubt that exists as to the existence of whether or not the moving party is entitled to summary judgment. Now it's going to be a little bit more, the concept of summary judgment to me becomes now a little bit more accessible because the the non-moving party has to demonstrate that a reasonable jury, a reasonable jury could still reach a verdict in favor of the non-moving party. And I believe that this, although I still think the second prong is the most significant, I think this third prong is also extremely significant because this really does lower the burden of establishing whether or not there is or is not a genuine issue of fact. And it really then, by by virtue of lowering that burden, makes summary judgment a more accessible remedy. I I, I like that phrasing. It makes summary judgment more accessible.
1: <laughs> that's uh, I like that. That's you know that's descriptive, and I think that's uh,
0: appropriate. Yeah, it's. I think that's a. I think it's a way to look at it. I I think that. I also think that trial courts generally will be more willing to grant summary judgment under the new standard, not just because it's, it's less restrictive or less strict, but also because it provides a little bit more flexibility in terms of apl- applying or examining the record. Because now a trial court isn't supposed to just say, a trial judge is not supposed to simply say, is there the slightest scintilla of doubt the judge will have to examine it and say, can a reasonable jury, based upon this evidence, reach a verdict in favor of the non-moving party, or the, or is there in fact, um, has the plaintiff or or the, I'll say, the non-moving party able to demonstrate by virtue of the record that there is in fact an existence of, of a genuine issue that is reasonable? So it will. Um, I think it'll, like, like I said, it'll, it will be more accessible. And the Florida Supreme Court concluded in that decision by saying that the federal summary judgment standard better comports with the text and purpose of rule 1.510. And the court concluded that adopting the new standard is in the best interest of our state. And then the court said that, quote, our goals are simply to improve the fairness and efficiency of Florida's civil justice system to relieve parties from the expense and burdens of meritless litigation and to save the work of juries for cases where there are real factual disputes that need resolution. And I think that that's definitely going to ring true.
1: Now, I'm curious. I want to go back to something you said in the beginning. You said that you thought that this transition ultimately was was inevitable, you know, that it was –
0: you could sort of see it coming. You thought it was inevitable. Tell me why. Well, the reason I say that is because in my own experiences – When I have argued for summary judgments, I have already, in my experience, utilized language like uh, a mere scintilla of a dispute is not enough. And I've argued that it's not enough to simply say that there's some possibility, some metaphysical doubt as to whether or not there's a genuine issue. I, I have many times argued something akin to a summary judgment standard. That doesn't mean it's always been granted. Uh, but I've had circumstances where um, I've utilized or argued that, and the courts have granted summary judgment. And those instances where that has happened, it was so clear that, the, that there's at least two instances that come to mind where the appellate courts affirmed on de novo review the summary judgments, even though they both arose out of negligence cases.
1: Yeah, and I think it certainly does make sense. I mean, our, our rules uh, of civil procedure have always been you know based on the federal rules and it certainly does make sense that you know the the realignment of the summary judgment rules so that our standard is is that of the federal courts
0: i think it does it does make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons i agree. I, I do think that and then the other the other sort of element that i thought about was the fairly recent Affirmative application or affirmative adoption of the Daubert standard, um, I think is another example of sort of a move to kind of some of the federal principles that uh, maybe just bring um, the application of certain elements of jurisprudence into into conformity with a broader uh, number of states and the federal system.
1: Well, thanks, Jack. I think that, that uh, that's been, you know, it's, sometimes these things are, they, they seem more complicated than they are when, when you lay it out like this. Um, it really, uh, the, the Supreme courts, Florida Supreme courts ruling, uh, and the amendment case actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think that, you know, drawing the, the summary judgment standard, uh, together with the federal standard makes a lot of sense. It is consistent with, you know, the, the, the progression of Florida law in, in more recent years. And, we will just have to, um, to see how it goes. But I think, you know, in the short term, we'll be learning more uh, federal cases and citing more federal cases until we, we develop that body of
0: law. But uh, it should be interesting. Definitely.
1: Well, Jack, thanks for
0: your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And uh, looking forward to uh, having another podcast anytime you need me. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jack.
1: This is episode 50 of the podcast. What is it about people that we have such a fascination with looking back, reminiscing? I wanted to share a few thoughts about the last two years. My first episode published March 7, 2019. Since then, I've published just under 40 hours of content with 39 different guests. My guests have included many of the best appellate lawyers in Florida, and I'm very grateful to every one of them. It's hard to pick a favorite moment, but... Definitely having one of my podcast heroes, Manon Fogarty, the grammar girl, on the show was a highlight. Check out episode 24 if you missed that one. It was also the last show before we all started to quarantine in March of 2020. The worldwide pandemic, of course, has had a huge impact on our lives and predictably on the podcast, too. Six episodes related directly to changes in our practice resulting from COVID-19, and many more were certainly influenced. Another favorite moment was the live show recorded at the Appellate Practice section meeting in Orlando. I really hope to do that again soon, when the world returns to some semblance of normal. As I plan the next episodes, the work gets a little harder. The low-hanging fruit has been picked. So, going forward, the show will focus more on changes and developments in the Appellate community and some deep dives into some more obscure topics of writing and advocacy. The shows may be shorter, but... I'd like to get deep on some topics that just don't get discussed enough. There may be some flyers here and there, but the focus will always be on appellate geekdom and related topics. So, thank you for listening. If you have ideas or want to be a part of the show, please let me know. I'm looking forward to at least another 50 episodes. I've really enjoyed making the show. The whole experience has been great. I could see myself appellate podcasting for a living, but... As Jimmy Buffett has wisely noted, my occupational hazard is, that occupation just ain't around. I guess I'll keep writing, arguing, and advocating in the appellate courts. Thanks again to Jack Ryder for being my guest on the show. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts, so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. We'll be taking a short break before episode 51. Your fully vaccinated podcast host is going to take a pre-summer break. If you have ideas for future episodes or just want to come on the show, drop me an email. The show will be back before we know it. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank
0: you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.